Welcome to The Running Public with Bracken Crocker and Kirk DeWint. Whether you are a brand new runner or you already have a great mustache, we're here to help you increase your running knowledge and present it at a practical level. This is The Running Public. When you're ready to take your training or racing to the next level, go to therunningpublic.com. We have both monthly subscription training plans, $19.99 a month, and Bracken and I both offer one-on-one customized coaching. Again, go to therunningpublic.com and check out our offerings. Before we even get going here, I feel like I need to give you your flowers as the most stunning transformation of maybe any fitness person I've ever met in my personal life. Because when I first met you, you were a 16 or 17 year old vegan ultra runner. And this past month you posted screenshots of people online calling you out for having too crazy of a physique that you can't possibly be natty. Like yeah. I, I don't know anyone in my world who has gone from one pole to the other pole without alienating either side along the way. So Despite not probably loving being accused of taking performance-enhancing drugs, it's also the single greatest compliment an athlete can ever receive. But to go from ultra runner <laughs> to this guy's too shredded and too jacked, that's that's something that is new to me. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it only took 15 years of like hard work, and you know, that's what so many people don't don't see. Um, and I think it's such a small fraction of people that like don't realize what's possible. Um, but it's always sad to me that people like see somebody with abs or like vascularity and they like don't even think it's achievable. Uh, I think we've set the bar <laughs> pretty low, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's not achievable off just like hobby workouts. Sure. Yeah. Not at all. And so most people only know people who look that way, who they also know for a fact because they talk about it are using. Right. There's, there's an alternate route there. Well, I, uh, I appreciate it. it. It felt good. I definitely took it as a compliment. Um, it's funny cause I had people messaging me. They're like, don't let people get to you. Or I'm like, I don't, it's just super funny to me. Um, but yeah, I've been like working so hard to get to that point. It's like, maybe someday people will think I'm on, on gear or something like that. So it felt great to reach that milestone. <laughs> Mark it down. Mark it down. Note, I think when I see your posts, um, obviously you're very, um, you bring your Alec twist to things, which is uh, fun for me to see as a trainer. You know, I've been doing this for, I don't know, 15 years or so. Um, but I think, like, I work in a Ma and Pa gym. I independently contract with a place called Lions Gym and Wellness Center. We call it, like, the cheers of gyms, right? And you're at a lifetime, which is bustling and booming and crazy. And so even in my small gym, I see people now with their selfie sticks and their little tripods and doing all this. And the amount of time that has to be involved with documenting, does it, it makes me wonder, like, first of all, I see it on a very small scale in my gym and at lifetime, it has to be every other person, I would imagine at times. Um, does that eat up a ton of time or is it really not that much of a pain? You know, I spend way more time just in my own head um, thinking about what do I want to write about than I do recording anything. Like the greatest effort that I'll go to in the gym is I just lean my phone against, you know, a, a weight or something and record a set of something I was going to do anyway. I don't change mm. my workouts. I don't, there's no setup time. There's no thought behind it. Um, one, I like to record some sets anyway. I think it's good just to like see techniques. Sometimes I'll catch things that I wouldn't otherwise see. Um, so I record some working sets here and there and then, 
you know, I just spend some time thinking about, okay, what can I write about this? And a lot of times what I write has nothing to do with <laughs> any of the sets I've done. Um, I think people sometimes think you need a, a new flashy exercise or something like that all the time to like grab people's attention. And like, if you scroll through, through my page, you'll see me doing like the same couple of lifts for like months worth of posts, but I can still make good content out of it. Um, like I was doing some basically stiff legged Zercher deadlifts. And I think I use that exercise as an opening video for like 10 posts. And like, you know, I was thinking maybe people will get bored of this, but it's the content behind it. It's the stuff you write behind it. So I spend a lot more time thinking about the actual words and the content I'm trying to convey than any of the, you know, production value. Well, it's getting traction. So it's working. And that's actually why I reached out to you because we refer to you from time to time on the podcast. Bracken, I, Bracken, I think, still has a little thing for you from back in the day. He likes to bring you up once in a while, Alec. But uh, well, that's weird because I just <laughs> said I met him as a sixteen-year-old boy. Well, hey, I don't. <laughs> so you got to rephrase that. I don't. He's he's a grown man now, Alec. Well, I don't know how old you are now, Bracken. But you you were pretty young. At, you had to be in your twenties at least. Yeah, I was probably twenty-three, twenty-four. Yeah. I mean, what is it like, uh, half your age plus seven or something? I think we were, I think it was all right. And we were in Texas. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Does that formula need to abide by the legal system? Or is that like, if like you do something you shouldn't, you can be like, but, but haven't you heard of the formula officer? Like half your age plus seven? And he'd be like, oh yeah, you're good. Like, I don't think that exists. Yeah. <laughs> it could be. There's the Mason Dixon line <laughs> conversion right. scale. And that eliminates that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Not a great start here. No, not this is our best start. Off, off to a hot start. Uh, this is what they come for, guys. Uh, anyways, <laughs> so through your posts, I've been seeing, um, you know, I, I saw a, a clip of you ripping on the treadmill and of the fitness and strength uh, gurus of the world. You very rarely see somebody pursuing run goals simultaneously of some sort. And you went out and were ripping, I don't know, mile repeats, I think, recently or something. You'll have to refresh me. But and then and then I'm filtering through your posts, I'm backlogging, right? And I'm reading like, this is some good stuff. This is some good stuff. I just keep like nodding my head to the point where my neck hurts, right? I'm like, okay, I like this guy. Like he gets gets it. He more than gets it, he teaches it. And then I was like, who better to talk to than like doing both at the same time, strength and running? And does one take away from the other? How do you get strong while staying fast? What is muscle done to your running performance? Like that whole conversation of like cost versus loss or benefit, so to speak. Like, I just think that's worth chatting out today. That's why I reached out to you for the most part. And we haven't had a strength conversation, Bracken, in how long on this podcast? It's been a minute. It has. And in my personal excitement about this conversation is that because hybrid sports have exploded in popularity, it's becoming in vogue again to try to improve your your strength gains and your running ability concurrently, which generally people are, are like to say you can't do both at the same time or the best you can do is hope to hang on to things. But now people are actively trying to increase their power output and their aerobic capacity or, or anaerobic mm -hmm. capacity at the same time. But what this industry has realized, I think, is that the text isn't really up to date on that. Like both texts, strength world and running is incredibly up to date, but melding it, all you have are, are people's personal anecdotes and what they worked on with athletes, but it changes throughout your athletic career. If you would have asked me seven years ago, I would have said, you need to take a block of training on one 
because I can't run when I'm lifting heavy. It just, I feel so, I I flash back to this run I did. I tried to go up and down this easy hill I had, and I was so worried about my hamstrings when I was in the middle of a heavy block. They were so uncomfortable, but that's not the case anymore. And so even like the anecdotal uh, evidence has to change throughout your own athletic career. And you have had one of the longest streaks that I know of personally of trying to do both and working with athletes to do both. So not saying that you are the textbook currently, but you're closer to that end than you are to the other end in this industry right now. You know, I think it's important to call attention to the the length of time that, you know, maybe I've been doing it or that basically that it takes to be successful with it. Because I think a lot of the, even the the research, for example, the anecdotes, it's a lot of relatively short time frames. People look mm-hmm. at eight week concurrent training studies. Um, they talk about how, oh, they tried this. 12 week lifting program and their runs went downhill. And these are really short periods of time. Uh, and when we look at even just the strength training research, when we look at like markers of muscle damage and inflammation, for example, um, that, that happen um, when you start a strength training program, it takes a pretty darn long time for some of those, those markers of inflammation and muscle damage to subside, to subside um, and for you to kind of fully experience that repeated bout effect. Um, so when you go into the gym for the first time and do a set of stiff legged deadlifts and your hamstrings are sore for two weeks, you know, the mm-hmm. markers of, of muscle damage are, are significantly elevated. You go back, you do it a second time. Um, not as much damage happens, not as much inflammation happens, but you don't adapt to that in a single workout. You know, it takes weeks, if not months, essentially for you to have, you know, full kind of attenuation of, of some of those inflammatory markers and whatnot from a strength training program. And I think it's silly to think that strength training would not interfere with with cardio throughout that kind of a attenuation period. Um, so when you start strength training, I think we just have to be realistic that, yeah, it is going to suck for a while. Uh, and I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that people make is they give it a month or two months or or even like three months and it's still difficult or they are experience, experiencing that kind of interference effect. Uh, and I think sometimes, you know, hybrid people like myself, we want to pretend the interference effect is is not a thing and we're like oh you're just you're not doing it right or it's in your head or whatever and like no the real problem is it's just only been 12 weeks give it another 12 weeks <laughs> and another 12 weeks after that and i think the longer you stick with it the the less you're going to feel that um cuz i've worked with so many athletes my my primary kind of demographic i would say is is strength athletes that want to start running uh is kind of the the main group of people i work with um and they find that their strength training it takes a big hit, you know, in terms of the energy that they have and, and that kind of thing for several months um, until we kind of see a return to their baseline performances. Um, so you might see what their baseline is at day one. It takes a hit when we add the cardio and it takes them a while to crawl out of that hole. And then they slingshot and they keep going. Um, and I think people just need to be really patient with it going into it um, and not draw, draw any conclusions from, you know, a couple of weeks or months worth of work. Yeah. Yeah, it's that initial feeling that you can't fake. Like, you know you felt it. I have gotten worse. And you instantly say, this either A, isn't real, or it's not real for me. Like, this can't work for an athlete. I know how 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 much worse I got. And so I completely pivot and turn my back on it without seeing it through to the other side. But there is no textbook yet that says this is how long you must endure it before you come out the other side. And this is the percentage of your previous maxes that are going to be waiting for you. And here how, here's how long it's going to take until you get back to that. And then here's your maintenance cycle moving forward. Because that doesn't exist, it all has to be taken on faith. 
And typically, a runner would have to look to someone like Kirk or I, or someone who is only strength-based and is talking in theory, and to trust them. Likewise, a strength athlete would have to look to someone like Kirk or I, or a peer running coach to say, trust me, it's going to work. But we don't move the weight that a strength athlete wants to see, and we don't run what an Olympic runner would want to run in order to convince them one way or the other that you'll be fine. And I think that you help bridge the gap a little bit, that you can do actually legitimate strength movements, not that Kirk can't or that I can't in some realm, but across the board, if we filmed all of our movements, two out of the three are going to get laughed at on multiple lifts of ours, and one of us won't be. And so I think that that's an important piece in there. You even see it on the the strength training for injury prevention side, you know, even if it's not a a true hybrid athlete per se, but just a a distance runner. Um, People will debate kind of strength training for injury prevention. And you have anecdotes of people who are like, you know, I fixed my IT band syndrome or I fixed this and that or the other thing by adding strength. And you have other people and they're like, I I got hurt. You know, I started doing yoga and I've never been more hurt in my life. You know, you Mm -hmm. hear anecdotes on, on both sides. And I think it's a lot of the same type of stuff. It's just the dose is what's so important and people just don't dose it right they underdose they overdose whatever um and i think there's just not like you said there's no textbook it's really hard to know exactly what you're supposed to be doing so we have so many anecdotes from people that just didn't really get it right so what's your argument what's your blueprint for walking someone through what's your elevator pitch for logically follow me through this guys if you can wrap your mind around this then logically the next thing will work too. Where where do you start athletes from one side or the other to convince them that it will be waiting for you on the other side? Sure. I think a lot of times people just out of the gate, they have a misunderstanding of what's involved um, in terms of uh, time costs and energy costs, metabolic costs. You know, some of the, the, they think of strength training as this thing that's going to be just super draining and time consuming and, and that kind of thing. And I say, what if we could give you thicker, stiffer, stronger Achilles tendons, patellar tendons? What if we could make those tissues more robust without making you any more tired? Does that sound like it would be help? Um, and I think that's a pretty easy argument to make. You know, we know how important it is to have um, kind of stiff, responsive tendons um, from an elastic energy return perspective and just a, a tissue tolerance perspective. But where people get hung up is, what is the the investment to get that? You know, how much mm-hmm. is that going to take away in terms of of time and energy and and whatnot? And when you point out to people that training for those sorts of qualities is much more dependent on intensity than volume, uh, even though I think most endurance athletes go in a gym and they do the exact opposite, they underload and they do sets of twenty, thirty plus, etc. And that's not really how we get some of the the adaptations that we really want to see in terms of you know, increased tendensiveness and whatnot. We need heavy loading. We need intensity. We need plyometrics. Those are the sorts of things that we need. And those tend to not be very metabolically demanding. So if you talk someone through what does an actual strength training workout look like for a runner to increase the qualities we care about, it's not that hard in the sense of like tiring. It shouldn't impact your running that much because they're not going to the gym to do another endurance workout. And I think that's the mistake they all make. They go and they do 30 reps in a leg press and then their legs hurt and they're like, having trouble running up a hill or whatever, like, okay, what if we just went and, and did a set of three and did some plyometrics and some hops and balance and whatever, um, you would feel a lot better. You'd be a lot less taxed, a lot less tired. 
and we'd get even more benefit. You know, how does that sound? And I, I think that's an easier sell when you talk through what it actually looks like. Yeah, I like that. You said um, only 12 weeks and then add another 12 weeks onto that and then another 12 weeks onto that. I want to just back us up just to here because I want to hone in on that. Um, saying that like uh, the, a script has not been written as to how to do this yet, uh, so to speak, balance it all, right? Um, but I think what people really want to know is how it might feel. Uh, what I mean by that is I'm a runner. I've never done lower body work and I do upper body work just so I feel somewhat okay in a t-shirt. But I understand that I'm missing a big piece of the puzzle, right? And so they start lower body work and it's like, oh, week one will be the worst. And then week two will be just a little better. And then I should be in the clear, which isn't the case, but that's how like logic typically Mm -hmm. will, you know, people will follow. So when you talk about the strength work impacting your running, why don't we talk about how it feels? From beginner, like, okay, I'm running 40 miles a week. Like, that's our baseline. I'm now re- I'm implementing strength work, purposeful strength work, l- heavy loaded strength work as you're talking. Could you describe like maybe what like a new person to strength should feel, how it impacts their running versus let's say you who've been doing the combination for years? Like, let's talk about, let's like walk through that sort of journey. Sure. Could you sure. walk us through? You know, yeah. Yeah, and it, it obviously depends on what are the goals of, of your strength work. Are you strength training just to kind of support um, your running performance goals? Are you trying to get stronger? Are you trying to add muscle mass? You know, do you, I have a client right now uh, who is training for a bodybuilding competition and a marathon simultaneously. Um, so that's obviously a very different pursuit than kind of adding a couple of strength sessions for, you know, injury prevention or even the obstacle racing performance, those, those sorts of things. Um, but I would say, a couple of key points that people have to keep in mind. Uh, stress is, is stress. I know whether it's stress from the gym, stress from the run, stress from your life, you can only handle so much stress at a time. And I think it's unrealistic to say, you know what I'm going to do this week? I'm going to increase the stress in my system by 50%. I mm-hmm. think that's just irresponsible. Um, mm-hmm. So when you have someone that wants to start strength training, I think you have to get them to back off a little bit. I'm not saying stop running. I'm not saying do anything drastic. Um, but I think being willing to say, okay, if we can pull back on your high intensity work, you know, the, the volume of high intensity work by 10 to 20% while we gradually phase in strength training. Um, I think that is kind of a, a trade off we have to make in the short term. I think it's going to make that initial adjustment period a lot, uh, a lot more smooth. Um, versus if you just throw a bunch of added stress on them all at once, it's probably going to backfire. They're probably going to feel too bad. They're going to get discouraged. They're not going to want to do it. Um, so get them to back off a little bit. And I think that will mitigate some of the, the worst of the side effects, so to speak. Um, if you are willing to ramp up very, very slowly, you know, and kind of gradually work up to a full strength program over the period of eight to 12 weeks, I think you can get it done or people hardly notice a thing. Um, but if you just say, okay, you're going to go from not strength training to strength training, then you're going to have that adjustment period. Um, so I think regardless of how you do it, it's going to take you some time to get to the point where you're doing a full strength training program and feeling pretty good about it. Um, I don't think either strategy is better or worse than the other because no matter how you slice it, there's just kind of a, a, a time to ramp to where people are going to feel pretty good. Um, but I talk to a lot of people um, that w- they talk about what they f- feel like during a, a workout. And sometimes people will say, um, you know, my heart's beating out of my chest or I can't catch my breath or, 
it's just my legs. You no, know, my, my lungs are fine. My legs are killing me. Um, you hear all these sorts of limiting factors and different workouts and whatnot. And I think when you're experiencing the fatigue from lifting, it really pushes or biases that limiting factor to be more muscular in nature. Um, so whereas during a, an interval workout where previously you might've been gasping for air, maybe now you're, you're quitting the interval early because your legs are on fire. Um, it may shift that limiting factor just a little bit um, because of, of the, the muscular fatigue, the muscle damage. Um, when your muscles are, are significantly damaged and sore, uh, it interferes with their ability to reuptake glycogen. Um, so you can have some potential fueling issues as well that you hadn't had before, at least kind of energy substrate issues that are just going to make you gas out earlier in a higher intensity workout. Um, so those are some of the things that you might feel initially. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it might mean that you need to structure some of those workouts a little bit differently. So maybe you had, you know, a six by 800 meter workout before and you're doing six by 800 at, uh, you know, 5k race pace or something like that. Um, and now you got to do that workout and your legs are just screaming at you. Um, maybe temporarily you break that volume up into 12 by 400 and you keep doing the strength work mm-hmm. you keep the pace the same. And then you kind of start building back up into some long intervals. You might just have to make some, some small adjustments to how your workouts are structured temporarily to kind of get over that muscular limit, muscular limitation hump. That's a good point. I think sometimes people forget that the thing they know to be true about their version of fitness most likely applies to the thing they don't know about the other version of fitness. Like if you spoke to a runner who said, I'm a high mileage runner, but I don't have enough speed intensity. Say, all right, you have two options here. You can either slash your volume and let's start building up some intensity. They'd be like, yeah, that's definitely an option. You said, or you could keep it where it's at and let's start doing some strides a few times a week and let's build those strides into short reps and let's do some fast finishes on long runs. And they all would grasp that that's true. But there's the strength version of that too. You can keep your volume the same and let's add in some light movements or we can slash it a little bit and add it in. But I think they forget that it's not the rocket science that it seems because it's a new scary venue. The same general rules of volume and intensity are going to apply, which is you can't just add three VO2 max workouts on top of your volume and expect your body to feel good. Something has to give. The same thing if you're going to add in three three by five sets a week. You know, it's it's the same type of deal, but getting a runner to think I'm going to lift with my running mentality, that can be a bridge. There's a lot in common with with adding strength and adding speed in terms of the fatigue. And you want to make sure that the, the quality stays high. You know, you don't want to be so tired going into the gym that your gym workouts are low quality and not get much out of it. Same thing with speed work. If you're super tired and your speed work is, is terrible quality, then it's probably not worth the squeeze. Um, so there's definitely, uh, you know, you got to balance those stressors so that you're, you're fresh and ready to go for your, your key workouts. Um, and with, with strength training, the other mistake I think that newer runners make is they don't understand its importance in terms of needing to be fresh and being able to get a high quality stimulus. Um, you should treat it more like speed work. Would you treat speed work as an afterthought that you do want to rest or recovery day when you're tired no speed work is is important you need to be fresh it's quality over quantity if you had to pick one um, as far as the speed goes and the gym is the same thing um i would even argue when people say well I'd, i'd rather prioritize my running my counterpoint is if you go into the gym feeling fresh and you can get the best possible stimulus from it you don't need to do as much 
if you're going to the gym and half-assing it or you're tired or you're not getting an effective stimulus from each set, you're going to need twice the volume to get the benefit. So if you can prioritize it in the sense that you are able to get that the same level of, of quality and stimulus you would get from a speed session, you can actually get really good results on very little. Um, but I think the fact that it is an afterthought for a lot of people then that requires them to do more of it to get the benefit. And then it becomes more fatiguing for, for less. I think a lot of people rattle around in their heads. Um, and even I do. And I, I mean, I've been in the gym for the last two decades, right? Like at what cost to my running is this workout going to be? At what cost I'm squatting today and it was a good, it was a good squat day. Now what's going to like, how's this going to impact my long run tomorrow? For me, I typically do some, my bigger damaging lifts on like a Thursday. And yet I have a long run or quality long run on a Saturday, even knowing things, how I know them. I'm like, all right, what's this going to do to me on Saturday years down, right? Everybody thinks (laughs) cost versus benefit again. Like, and I'm to the point now where I can have a very productive Saturday session, even on legs that got pretty beat up on a Thursday. Let's say there may be some residual tightness and fatigue, but I can work through it. Do I prescribe 400s, ripping them? No. But is it a good day for me to do threshold work? Absolutely. Right? Very different. Um, what I'm getting at, is there ever a point in which, like, yeah, there, you shouldn't have that conversation with yourself. At what expense is this strength workout going to do to my running? Like, does that ever go away? Do people dream <laughs> of an impossible scenario? Do you get what I'm asking? Yeah, yeah. I think that there's... It's not just the interference effect. And I think it's important to point out that there is some synergistic effects as well. So I think rather than only thinking about what is the cost, you can also think what is the advantage. Um, so for example, if I'm your glass is half full, Alec, and then go, I like it and then go run for four (laughs) or five miles, I can think, okay. Um, so I'll, I'll even give you a, a practical example. When I do an easy run, for example, and I want my, for me, my easy runs, my heart rate's like one, 140s, 150. Um, if I just start cold, you know, I walk out the door, I start running. It takes me a mile or so for like that heart rate to get up to that level. And then I sustain it. Um, and you know, maybe 15 minutes in, I start to notice I'm, I'm a little bit sweaty. You know, my body temperature is elevated. Um, on the flip side, if I have just done a leg workout, and then I go out and I start running, my my heart rate gets to that level within like a minute. And I'm mm-hmm. already sweating. And I'm already kind of pre-depleted a little bit. I'm in a lower energy state. So I'm actually kind of getting into the zone, so to speak. Um, not like a literal intensity zone, but I'm getting in, you know, my my mitochondrial respiration state, if you want to get technical, is is already where it needs to be to be eliciting some some adaptation. Whereas mm-hmm. now, before I had to run a mile or two to even get into that state because I've lifted them already there. Um, so yeah, there's maybe a cost. I'm running a little bit slower. Um, but even that may not necessarily be as much of a downside as, as you think. One variable in the research when looking at strength training for injury prevention is one way in which strength training might mitigate injury risk is by actually reducing the intensity of some of the endurance training. We know that when you run slower, there's less load on the Achilles tendon, for example. And so if you can get a similar metabolic stimulus from a run that's 15 seconds per mile slower because you're pre-fatigued, you can get a similar metabolic stimulus with less mechanical stress in certain structures that then can rest a little bit, a little bit more than they would have otherwise. 
um, that may actually be a good thing um, in the sense that, hey, you can run slower, still get a good session and then make sure that you're fresh again for your next, you know, key workout. Um, so I think there's more to it than just, oh man, I'm going to be sore, I'm going to be tired. Think of it as I can run a little bit slower and still get a good workout, or I can run maybe 10 minutes less and still get a good stimulus from it. Um, not that those factors, you know, completely negate any sort of interference, um, but it at least kind of, you know, settles the score a little bit more. It's a really good point. And it's worth an athlete identifying, why am I running? Is it for enjoyment or am I, am I training to get better? Because, and I think we all would agree on this, that we can't think of a single pro athlete we know who targets their improving metric as their easy run pace. Like I don't know a single pro camp who, when they get together on the whiteboard each week, they're like, all right, this week we must lower our easy run by five seconds per K. That's not the way it works. In fact, it's the only metric they really don't care about is what pace are we running on easy and recovery runs? They might have a general target, but if Eliud Kipchoge can run eight minute pace in training, so can can, I. <laughs> we can all probably get away with that. And so there is that. If I enjoy running and I just want to enjoy it, you probably don't want pre-fatigue. But if sure. you're trying to get better, this is a little badge you get to put on your lapel that says, I got better today. Because you don't go out for the easy run to check a number of minutes. The easy run is set up to internally make you better. Right. And if you can check that box, however you check it, you got better that day. But it's hard to feel like you're getting better if you feel like crap on your easy run. And if your strength training is so difficult to the point that you're not just still tired on your easy runs, but you're still fatigued three days later when your next, you know, high intensity run comes back around, then that's a problem. You didn't do the strength training properly. The, the fatigue should not stick around that much. Realistically, if you're going to do a tough leg workout twice a week, for example, that might mean that you have two or three run workouts that are a little bit compromised. And if you schedule things well, then it probably shouldn't be much of your key workouts anyway, um, or at least not all of them. You should still be able to get in a lot of your key workouts with very minimal background fatigue. There's going to be a little bit. It's not none. Um, but if you're like, I'm sore all the time, then you're, that's probably, you're probably not doing it right. Well, a novice runner can't fathom the idea of a recovery run. Running so fatiguing that you can't fathom, like, I did my long run, so tomorrow I'm going to go out for an easy hour. Like, that's, <laughs> that's not a thing. But then, then you eventually become a good enough runner, good enough at the skill and at, at the cost of it, that that is a thing. And then we forget that when we go to strength training, that early on, there's no concept that I could modulate intensity while lifting. Like, it takes everything I have to move well and to lift this and i'm destroyed afterwards but it's hard to think that eventually this motion won't cost me anything and eventually i could lift at a seven out of eight i mean a seven out of ten or an eight out of ten or a seven and a half like you don't have that option early but just like running you will cost less to do different tasks eventually and then things can stack differently well and if you look at like your, your strength training volume yeah there's kind of a cost to work up to this point but if if you get to the point where a normal strength workout is say like six really tough sets per muscle group or, or whatever you're doing. If I got six tough sets of quads, six tough sets of hamstrings, whatever, if that's my normal and then I know like, okay, I've got a really tough running week or I've got uh, like a B or a C race, you know, I want to be run well this weekend, something like that. Well, I can scale that back to three sets instead of the mm -hmm. six 
still get kind of a good minimum effective dose, still get a stimulus, but I'm I'm not going to feel that hardly at all in terms of fatigue. Um, so you get to a point where you're able to step back a little bit. And I think getting to that point is important and realizing that it's not all or nothing, that you can yeah scale that stress up and down. And you might have periods of your training where you're kind of pushing the envelope a little bit, seeing how much of this volume can I get away with. And then there's other times where then you cut it in half and you can actually still kind of make some progress on that. It's not, you're not giving up on progress, um, but you're able to dial that stress back enough that then it's a, it's a piece of cake for you, essentially. Mm-hmm. Bracken brings up a good point. And then you kind of led me there with this question. Um, it's very cut and dry, like running. Okay. Let's keep easy days easy and let's keep hard days hard and let's sort of minimize the gray zone running if we can. And I think most subscribe to that formula at this point. And now hearing you talk, reducing sets or maybe possibly weight, like do the same principles apply for strength work? You know, people, let's say on a split routine, you know, you got your physique guy who's also running a marathon. Like, I'm going to go murder my back and biceps today. And then I'm going to go murder my chest and triceps today. I'm going to go murder my shoulders and core today. And pretty soon every day is is a high intensity day. You get what I'm getting at here? Like if you're running splits or maybe you only do total body twice a week, as a lot of runners do, to be honest, or a push-pull split. But when they're in there, they're like, it's a quality day, let's call it, right? Like they're going to true failure. Maybe they're doing drop sets or whatever they can do to leave exhausted, right? So where's the balance then? Like, is there a version when you're trying to do it all that encompasses the similar principle or does it not work that way in your mind? You know, there's different kind of philosophies and, and camps that people subscribe to. So a lot of people when they're training um, athletes, and I say athletes in, in, in quotes because not including like strength athletes, but, you know, runners, people that play team sports, those, those sorts of athletes. A lot of people when they're training athletes, in the gym, they prefer not to do a, a body part split. They like the idea of like a high stimulus, low stimulus day. So you got your high stem days where you're doing your most fatiguing exercises, your, your squats, your deadlifts, et cetera, but also like heavy explosive upper body, you know, push presses or Olympic lifts, um, things that just require a lot of full body engagement, high, 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 high effort. Um, and then they have their lower stem days where maybe it's more like upper body pump work, some buys and tries, maybe some lower body accessories that are more like shortened position, like a leg extension, probably not going to get super sore. Um, so they may divide um, sessions between high and low stem um, and then kind of consolidate stresses accordingly so that the athlete has kind of high stem days and low stem days or recovery days. Um, I don't think it necessarily has to be that different than um, other splits, you know, upper bodies, maybe it's still max effort for the those muscles um but compared to the overall training stress that a runner is putting in their legs uh, an upper body day is still pretty easy in, in my opinion at least the, the things that they would be doing um so i think as long as you know specific tissues interview systems etc get a break at some point i think you can manage your stressors effectively that you can still have a some sort of quality stimulus every single day i don't think you have to have a day where you're like i'm just not going to do anything. I can't, my biceps can't do anything today because I got to run tomorrow. I I don't Mm -hmm. think you necessarily need Mm -hmm. a a day like that. Uh, But I don't think there's any right or wrong way to do it. I think it's just finding the, the logistics that works for you. A lot of it comes down to scheduling preferences and, and that more than anything physiological. Um, So I think it's kind of a, you know, find what works for you uh, more than anything. Okay. I use this uh, term with some of my athletes and, and the term is Tuesdays are sacred. 
meaning I want you to go into the most important workout of the week, able to access your running, right? Let's not screw that up beforehand. Whatever that means to show up, Tuesdays are sacred, Saturdays are meant for fatigued running. That's sort of how I look at the week. means if you're tired for your long run, good. You might have got more out of that long run because your legs are a little beat up from the strength work before. Like This is layered effect. Good on you. But I still say I want one day of clean running a week. Maybe their last lower body hit was from four days prior, let's say, or something. Can you tell me if I'm right or wrong there and what your thoughts are on that philosophy? And I'm genuinely curious what you have to say to that. Just say wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I like the general framework and the the general principle. I think knowing what aspect of of an athlete's fitness is it going to take the most amount of work to need to move the needle forward on. Um, so when you look at an athlete's ability, you know, and we we could talk any potential quality. Is it, is it your ability to squat or deadlift? Are you trying to get better at those? Are you trying to get better at, are you trying to improve your, your threshold? Um, what, what quality is it that you're trying to improve that is going to be the biggest challenge for you? Um, those tend to be the sessions that I would say are sacred sessions. So if the most challenging quality for you, where you have the most experience, you have a big history trying to kind of move the needle on it and it's tough for you. If you try to go into a session like that and you're fatigued, you're definitely not going to make any progress on that quality. Um, so I would identify what are the things that you need the, to be the most fresh for and prioritize accordingly. Um, so that could be your short distance speed work. Um, it could be um, some longer tempo or, or threshold stuff. Um, it could be, you know, I work with a lot of, of power lifters who run and these athletes tend to have like their favorite lift and their not so favorite lift. Um, so they have the lift that they are really, really good at, really experienced at. You know, you have the deadlift specialist that, you know, every time they go to the gym, they want a deadlift. They're great at it. It's going to take them a lot of work to get much better at the deadlift. I don't want them deadlifting fatigued. Um, they need be- to be able to give it everything they have to be able to get just that little bit better. Um, so those are the sacred sessions for those athletes. Um, so I think the general idea is, is great. It's just identifying what does the sacred session need to be. Sure. Yeah. Which we didn't get into. And of course, I think that's yeah, athlete customization um, and all of that. Um, okay. So I want to ask you, um, wh- what's your objective? Like, it's really easy for people to be like, I want to be a faster runner or I want to get stronger or I want to be more jacked, right? But like, from the outside, you're kind of trying to do it all. Am I wrong or am I right? Yeah. In in one okay. Yeah. So, which is awesome. So, do you feel like with that approach, like people would like logic would say, okay, well, one is inhibiting the other, and the other is inhibiting the other, and you're getting ninety five percent of the way there with everything, but not a hundred percent, right? Let's just people may think that. Sure. What do you, what do you, how do you address that? Like knowing, do you think that is even a philosophy worth chatting out? Do you think like for me, for example, I'm roughly 170, 172 pounds and I'm 5'10". I'm trying to break 15 minutes in the 5k this as a 41 year old man this summer, right? People would, logic would tell me, well, Kirk, why did you do bench press on Wednesday? Because I like it and it makes me feel good. And I went heavy because I need, I just need that. But people from the outside, from the running world, would yeah. be like, are you an idiot? Like, 
get yourself to 162 pounds and run your best. You get so I yeah, wrestle yeah. with this myself is yeah. what I'm getting at. I want to look and feel good, but also run fast. I want it all. Like, what do you do with that? What do you do with that whole conversation? <laughs> um, you know, training interferes with training. Um, I think that to just to kind of think about the interference effect more broadly, um, any training that you do is going to interfere with everything else that you do. Um, so if I go into the gym and I'm going to do squats and deadlifts, my squats are interfering with my deadlifts. My deadlifts are interfering with my squats. My speed work is interfering with my easy run the next day and, and so on and so forth. Every single thing that you do incurs a, a cost, um, in terms of your, you know, adaptive currency, um, if you will. Um, so I think recognizing that and just thinking about, you know, how much time and energy do you have and are the things that you're doing things that you want to improve at? And if it's something you want to improve at, then do it. Um, if you like benching, then, then bench recognizing that it is going to take time. It is going to take energy. It is a thing. Um, you know, pretending that you can get any sort of adaptation for free, I think is, is a bit naive. Um, but in terms of, you know, specific interference, if you tr had someone try to articulate why is bench press going to hurt, um, uh, you know, why is it going to hurt my 5k energetically? Probably not much, maybe taking time away that you could have been doing something else. Um, you know, you got a couple more pounds of muscle mass, you got to lug around. And for the most part, outside of just general time and energy commitment, the absolute biggest mechanism um, through which the interference effect is real is body composition. That is like number one, nine, 95% of the interference effect is body composition. How come great lifters can't run faster? Because they're bigger. Like, is it the leg fatigue? Is it the time? Is it whatever? Like maybe a little bit, but 95% of it is they're just bigger athletes. Um, if you, and I've, I've seen people do this, um, when you take hybrid athletes that, you know, do a lot of lifting and running when they kind of scale back the lifting or they go on a deficit and they lose 15, 20 pounds, they're really fast. <laughs> they're really good. They tend to be really quite good. Um, you know, so that they have the underlying capacity, they have the underlying cardiac output and, and so on. So I think for a guy like you wrestling with, you know, how much is bench press going to interfere with my 5k, you know, it's, it's a body mass thing and you can kind of work out some general math of how much faster you think you'd be at a lighter weight and decide is that, or is that not worth it to me? And that's, that's really a personal choice. Um, you know, how much money are you going to make? How much notoriety are you going to gain by taking 15 seconds off your 5k? And would you want that? Lots of money, lots of notoriety. I'm going to be an A-list celebrity when that happens. <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly. And that's, but I'm still going to bench press. <laughs> rationale, people. <laughs> people will be like, you know, why don't you focus on this or the other? I'm like, well, to be to be honest, I know that I don't have what it takes, whether it's you know physically, mentally, emotionally, anything. I I don't have what it takes to be as good as I would want to be at a single sport for it to be worth it. So it's just not hmm. really a conversation worth entertaining for me because I would much rather be you know, great at two things, um, then, you know, almost the best, but still probably not making money off of one. Mm -hmm. Well, and most people aren't maxed out at what they do, right? They're, they haven't hit their best volume. They haven't hit their highest, you know, frequency of quality run work. They, they're just not there. And so if you detract from that 
for a few months with strength training. And then it brings you to a stronger overall place. You're probably not much worse for the wear, but it might unlock a little bit in you realizing that there's more frequency to be had here. It was an interesting byproduct of doing hybrid athletics for me was realizing how much better, and it was a reminder, I had doubled back in the day, but I hadn't doubled for a while, how much better my body responds to doubling. And it was a great reminder, but I wasn't doing it because running beat me up at the same time. (laughs) Even though it responds fitness-wise to doubles, the second runs were, it wasn't just adding 25% more pounding to my week. That extra 25% pounding contained like 80% of my pounding for the week. (laughs) Right. And so... But it was a great reminder that frequency is really key for me as an athlete. And strength training will teach you some of those little things that running doesn't. But if you're not optimized now, I don't love hearing the card, well, though, this will be suboptimal. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's funny hearing an athlete that like runs 30 to 40 miles a week worrying about the interference effect. Right. Not that you can't achieve good results on 30 to 40 miles a week by, by any means. If I was talking to an athlete that runs 80 plus miles a week and they're worried about the interference effect, I'll say, okay, I, I get it. I understand mm-hmm. where you're coming from. I get your concern. Um, but an athlete that's training, you know, four to five hours of, of total endurance training per week, I'm like, you're out of your mind. Just, <laughs> just run some more. You're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's going to sound, some people are going to be butthurt by that because 30 to 40 miles a week is the max that they believe they can run. But most likely it's not something's holding them back from doing more in strength training. Exactly. So like with the 30 to 40 mile per week athlete, they, they may think that that's as much endurance training as as they can handle, but adding strength on top of that, it's more stimulus. Mm -hmm. It's just more stimulus. Whereas if, if I'm working with an 80 mile a week athlete to add strength on top of that, you know, we might have to pull back on the mileage and we may not be able to give them more stimulus. We might just be giving them different stimulus. But when you add strength work to a 30 mile a week athlete, it's just more. And all else being equal, even if it's fairly general work, more is probably better. If a 30 mile per week athlete is stronger, they will probably be better across the board. And you can't really make that argument with someone who's training three, four times as much. 100%. There's no way they're maximizing muscle recruitment off 30 miles per week of running, even if it takes them to their fatigue or like bone limits of what they can handle. And so any muscle recruitment is better. Any heart rate rise is better. If you're not optimized, work is work. And if you honestly think that 30 to 40 miles per week is the maximum you can take from a structural perspective, from a bone and and tendon perspective, you are a prime candidate for strength training. That's what strength training Mm -hmm. is there to do. Yep. So you have this 80 mile a week athlete that for some reason gets, they've never strength trained before and either they're told they need to, or they get this idea that it would help them. Let's talk to like the most basic level. Why, why would I, why did, why should, why should I add in strength training (laughs) as a runner? Like why? And I want to see where you go with this because I don't know where you're going to start, but like, why would I even do this? Bracken and I have openly talked like, you know, like if we're just talking from raw speed, we have, we have sort of this philosophy that, not philosophy, but I think a belief that like you see a lot of return on investment in like explosive run athletes, let's say 100, 200, any of the field events up to four, maybe the 800, like getting in the gym and working on your raw power, your ability to explode. And then somewhere from like the mile to the half marathon, like, eh, like how much is this going to move my needle? this strength work. And then again, we believe in the ultra scene and especially in the mountains, 
once you're out there for so long, again, strength work becomes vital again because it's about taking damage. But most people are in that like middle ground, right? Like nobody's ripping 800s in adult life. They're out there doing, you know, the color run and whatever else crap they can find. Uh, so all of that yeah. to say, what do you th- like? Why should we strength train as runners? Like, just give me your spiel. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a difference between expressing equality and developing equality. And so when you're doing a long distance event, there's a lot of qualities that you have to express. And some of those qualities include, um, you know, structural integrity. When you, when your foot hits the ground and, you know, your, your foot hits the pavement, there are deformities, you know, your, your bones deform under load over and over and over and over again. And you need to have strong bones and tendons, et cetera, to be able to withstand that over and over and over again. Um, to some degree, that kind of impact is good for improving bone density and, and whatnot. Um, but only up to a, a point. Um, long distance running is not the best way to improve bone density in the, the lower extremities, for example. Um, you would think that it, it would be, but there tends to be this effect of uh, the bones becoming kind of deaf or, or numb to the stimulus. Um, whereas, you know, running 20 miles does not necessarily confer any additional benefit um, to bone health than just running 10 or 5, for example. Um, so even though the stress is greater and the need is greater, that doesn't necessarily mean that the actual stimulus or the adaptation is greater. Um, so when you look at a very long distance runner, if you have someone who's running 80 miles a week, they may have a greater need for um, bone and tendon, you know, tissue capacity than someone running a lot less. But the running that they're doing is not necessarily any better or conferring any more advantage or stimulus to them as a runner who is running a quarter of the distance. Um, so when we look at what sort of training actually confers those adaptations, that's what you're going to get from, you know, heavy, high intensity resistance training um, and plyometric training. Um, so we need to develop the qualities that they're going to express and realize kind of counter to what a lot of people think about the specificity principle, that just because a task is an expression of a quality does not mean it develops a quality. And I think so many people are hyper fixated on specificity that they don't realize that. And sometimes we have to do something that's different or a little bit more general to develop those qualities that you want to express. Yeah. To expand on Kirk's point of what we were saying, I think if you look at mile, 5K, 10K, you have every bit as high percentage of world record holders and Olympic champions who have never touched a weight to those who have. Right. The times don't show much different for peak human performance, but it also doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Exactly. Exactly. Just because someone can run a 12.45 right now is about the fastest we're seeing, 12.45 K, without touching it doesn't mean that they're going to be around to do it next year. Like from peak human performance, I don't believe a runner needs to touch a weight. I truly don't. Even in the 100 meter dash, you take a look at certain European countries and certain Asian countries and they do not strength train. Mm-hmm. And they run darn near as fast as anyone else. You'll, you'll run sub 10 with or without strength training. Maybe you don't run, run nine, seven, but you truly don't need it. But if you want to do it again next year, you do. And if you want to do it the year after, and if you want to train higher or feel better doing it. So what we were saying is from a performance need, middle distance and long distance runners, it won't make you faster. Right. But it can give you the ability to do the things more often and consistently that do make you faster. Well, I think it's an entire different discussion when looking at, you know, if you're 
a five, six hundred twenty five pound athlete you know, running versus, mm-hmm. you know, Kirk's 172, um, you know, different impact forces and, and those sorts of things. But I also think it depends on how broad of a dis- definition of strength um, do you have. Um, mm-hmm. So if you look at a middle distance athlete is doing a all out 15 second hill sprint strength training. Uh, and I think that in some ways it, it is much, much closer to strength training than it is to endurance training. Um, so I think if you take that sort of broader definition, I think that strength training is probably a little bit more popular than you give it credit for um, in the sense of touching a weight. Uh, I should say weight training. Yeah, weight training, resistance training, whatever. I think what's important is not the use of a specific modality of, you know, using a piece of equipment or a weight or doing an exercise with a specific name. It is high intensity, high impact, high force. And I think there's a lot of ways to do that that don't require going inside of a gym. Um, so the most important things that a runner can do from a performance perspective, from an injury perspective, um, is going to be exposure to those extremely high forces that are exceed the levels experience in their, you know, their specific event. Um, so if you have a 5K athlete and you look at what are the, the forces that you experience running a 5K, anything that they're doing where the forces are much, much higher, I think counts as strength training. And if they're doing a 15 second hill sprint or flat sprint for all I care, um, I think that counts as strength training. Um, maybe that's too broad of a definition and people wouldn't, uh, wouldn't agree with that. Um, but I think it's at least plyo. Yeah. Doing some, uh, you know, single leg balance, sprint drills, track work, whatever that I think can offer similar benefits, um, to the gym. And I think when it comes to choosing whether or not to do strength training, I don't think it's a matter of should I do strength training? It's what sort of training am I going to do to get exposure to these high forces? Am I going to be an athlete that decides to do a lot more, you know, hill work and plyo work and speed and stuff, you know, from a general quality development perspective? Or am I going to step into the gym and do some work there or take a, a combination approach? Um, but I think it's a requirement, um, maybe a strong word. I think it's a requirement that you do some sort of work in that category. It doesn't have to be in a gym with a barbell or cable or whatever, um, but you have to get exposure to some of those forces. Mm-hmm. And just to final clarify that, we're not saying that we don't think that you should because we get all of our athletes to lift. Yep. Just saying that for the camp that says it won't make you faster, that might be a valid argument. But fast is judged by a stopwatch, and that stopwatch can work one time, and you are fast. Like yeah. You have these people, these East Africans who come in off of sheep herding or goat herding at 16 years old, run a world championship qualifying time without formal training, and they're out of their sport three years later. They did not need strength training, but they should have been doing it. Yeah. You trying to play cleanup after my comment, Bracken? Making sure nobody's misunderstanding? No, just Alec will bring a few listeners to this who do not care about running, but they care about him. And the sure. easiest thing to hear is what you expect to hear out of a running coach, which is us saying lifting is not going to make you faster. Well, and I would, I would agree with that in the sense that even, you know, whether it's, it's speed or, or, or injury. And I, I think I bring up the injury risk, um, not because I'm like, not because I really care about injury risk that much, but because I think that injury risk and performance really correlate a lot more closely than people would think. They think of them as these different categories. But training to prevent injury, in, in my view, is the exact same thing as training to prepare the tissues to do their job. Um, and when you train tissues to do their job, they perform better. 
So I think that, you know, if we, we can learn a lot from the injury prevention research and get an idea of what might be good for performance. I think if someone could, could come out and say this training program eliminated running injuries, I would be willing to bet a million dollars that made them faster too. Um, just based on how the, the mm. mechanisms work. Um, so I think if we can look at some of the research and what studies did and didn't, uh, you know, improve injury risk, I think there's a lot to learn in terms of what it may be able to do for, for performance. And when you look at some of the, the meta analyses, for example, you don't really learn a whole lot. Like, yeah, string training, yeah, whatever. It might permit a little bit of injuries sometimes. Um, but when you look at some of the individual studies and you look at, okay, what studies showed that strength training was good for injury prevention and what didn't, um, the, the common theme is that the things that are the most effective are the high rate of force production, um, activities, your plyometrics, your jumps, sprinting, those sorts of things. Um, those are far more effective, um, from an injury prevention perspective than most of the gym-based exercises. Um, doesn't mean the gym-based exercises are bad by any means, um, but I think the key takeaway for a lot of people is the purpose of strength training is exposure to high impacts and high forces. Um, and when you go into the gym and you're doing a set of 20, you're just not doing that. Um, so I, I think that's the biggest mistake that, that people make. Not that there's not a place for you know general hypertrophy support or something like that, but the foundation of a good strength training program are those high forces. Uh, and the best way to do that is, is with plyometrics. With plyometrics, that is a scary concept for a runner, as is most gym-based strength training. Barbells are scary. Movements that require some semblance of mechanics are scary, and plyometrics are scary. It's too closely related to ball sports or team sports or gym class where you didn't do well. If you take the stereotypical runner, now, late-life runners don't always follow the same trajectory, but most runners who find it for the first time find it because there was something else they weren't as good at. So plyometrics remind us of that. Where <laughs> yeah. do you start a runner so that you don't expose this huge inability to move athletically, but you work on the ability to move athletically? Yeah. So one of my one of my favorite studies I came across recently, and, and I like it because it shows you how simple it can be, is they looked at bone density in long-distance runners. Um, and they had one group just continuing to train long distance and one group added the simplest plyometric program you've ever seen. Um, I'll have to look at the exact reps, but I believe it was five sets of 10, um, max height jumps. That's it. And they did that every day. Um, so was it springing for five or jump reset? Uh, I believe it was springing for 10. Okay. And it was five sets of 10 springing jumps. Okay. Um, so like plyometric squat jumps. Um, and that was it like five sets of 10 jumps on top of their, their long distance training. And that was enough to improve their bone density. Um, and it, it, it's just mind blowing how simple that is. Um, it doesn't have to be fancy. Um, yeah, I think it's important to include a variety of plyometrics and, and whatever, and you can get into the weeds a little bit, but the important is you just get people doing something and it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be Olympic weightlifting. It doesn't have to be kettlebells or, or whatever. It doesn't have to be anything super complex just and the the technique even like i don't you don't have to coach people's landing mechanics and tell them how to jump just just jump it's not that one um so i think getting people to realize that like plyometrics are not complicated you can make them complicated but getting someone to jump on two feet or one foot just do the thing and make it hard and it's it's going to be effective i promise 
Yeah, and that follows the logic of what a runner would tell someone if they wanted to get faster. If you add in any amount of faster running, you're going to get faster. Just sprint for 100 yards three times twice a week, and you're going to become mechanically more efficient and faster. It's the same thing, I suppose, with things that aren't running. Yeah, and I think one of the ways that you can think about it, and people would be like, well, why not sprint or whatever? I'm like, well, well, sprinting is great. Um, You can only do so much of any one given activity. And doing plyometrics and jumps or heavy lifting or whatever, it's just more options to move in different ways to deliver the same kind of end result in terms of what the stimulus is. And the more options you have to get the same outcome, the less likely you are to overdo any one thing. Uh, And I think it just makes it a lot simpler and safer, essentially, if we say, hey, there's, there's a dozen ways we can accomplish this. Let's mix a few of them together versus this is the only way to do it. You got to do an obscene amount of sprint work, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's I don't think that's a smart. Following that up, a bit of an unfair question, which will probably m- make you roll your eyes, but I want you to try for me. Um, because every mo- it seems like when I ask a question, you're like, well, it depends on the athlete's needs, which is the right answer, right? Well, what do they need? That's going to base the prescription. Um, I think a lot of athletes don't know what the heck they need, right? It's no fault to theirs. You don't know what you don't know, right? <laughs> So yeah, my question for you is, <clears throat> for example, you go out and you do an eight mile run and you get 8,000 steps. That's 8,000 reps of the same lightweight movement as we call it, which is why we need to counter that with, let's say more anabolic movements and lower rep schemes. My question for you is <laughs> generalizing what, what are we looking at here when you say like high intensity strength work and loading the system? Like, what are we talking about rep range? And I know it's subjective and I know it matters on the person. And then also, um, again, like if you were to pick some, some purposeful movements and it could be as simple as jumping that you think would move the needle for most runners. Like if you could answer those two questions in your, in your opinion for me, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I think, for and I hate to open the question with it depends, but I'm gonna expand on it. Um, so it it depends on the level of the athlete in terms of how specific you need to be with the desired adaptation. This Alec is like fifty percent of what I do on here is <laughs> I don't give a straight answer, so the, the listeners are totally comfortable. I, I'm 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 gonna explain it though. More than fifty percent. <laughs> so if we let's if we simplify it and and just say our goal adaptation for this strength training session or whatever it is, is we want to load the tendon. We want to improve tendon stiffness or thickness. Or um, If someone gets sufficiently stronger, you know, if we compare, uh, if we take someone who can squat a hundred pounds, we train them up, we get them to now they can squat 200 pounds. I don't care how you got them there. I don't care if you did sets of three, eight, 12 or 20, you improve someone's squat that much, their tendon got stronger too. Um, so on the one hand, I'd say it doesn't really matter because eventually if you get someone strong enough, you're going to get the underlying adaptations that you want. There's a very close relationship between the health and the strength of the muscle and the health and the strength of the bone and the tendons that are attached to it. Um, so in that sense, it, it doesn't matter that much. However, the more the athlete is running, the more that athlete is close to their, you know, maximum recoverable volume or their their limit in terms of what they can handle the more specific we need to be about getting that adaptation 
as efficiently as we possibly can. Um, so that's why we tend to see for novice runners, strength training has a very broad protective effect in terms of injury risk, regardless of what it is. Um, the, the modality of strength training doesn't seem to matter that much for beginners because I think they have so much more capacity to pull from that doing sets of five, sets of 10, doing squats, doing leg extension, it doesn't really matter. They put on some muscle mass. They're going to improve their tendon strength and health, whatever. Um, you try to get someone that goal inefficiently who is already at a hundred percent. Um, then you run the risk of giving them too much and actually doing more, da- doing more damage and offering a, a protective effect. Um, so when you have someone who is running a ton already, um, rather than saying, okay, we're going to improve your, your squat strength, um, with sets of 20, that'd be way too exhausted. Um, if we really want to target some of those, you know, tendon adaptations and bone adaptations, we need to go much heavier, you know, three to five reps, for example, or do some heavy isometrics for, you know, 10 to 30 seconds. Um, those are some of the things that I would do. Can, can I interrupt you real quick? Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, I, just before I, I, I was just on that tra- train of thought, like they should do three to five reps versus 20 reps, which would be exhausting for them. Most novices look at it the opposite. Like, oh my God, like three to five reps is going to be so heavy and so hard on my body. And they think, oh, 20 reps, I can handle that. That's approachable. That means I get to go lighter weight and it's fluffy. <laughs> but it couldn't be less true, right? Could Right. I'm sure you were going somewhere with that thought. I'm sorry for detracting you, but like, I think that's an important thing to hone in on. Like, why would heavier mean less stressful? That doesn't make sense to me. You get what I'm asking? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you, whether you're training for a set of five or or 20, if you want to get a, a stimulus from it, you have to reach, you know, you have to train sufficiently close to mechanical failure. Um, so, you know, within a couple of repetitions in the reserve, for example, from, from true failure, if you want to be recruiting, uh, you know, enough high, uh, high threshold motor units, um, to elicit an adaptation in them and, and put sufficient strain across the tendon. Um, if you're doing a set of 20, it's very easy and more common to underload it. Um, in my view, regardless of what rep range you're training, um, the physical effort behind the final reps of the set should feel similar. You know, if I'm on rep five of a set of five versus rep 20 of a set of 20, if I just woke up and uh, gained consciousness in the middle of that set (laughs) and that rep, um, they probably all feel about the same because it should all be hard. Um, The difference is that a set of three or five is much much less metabolically demanding. You're not bracing and uh, occluding blood flow and stuff for a minute or minute and a half. It's 10, 15 seconds or, or whatever. Um, so the metabolic demand is significantly different. The actual physical effort should not be that different. In practice, it usually is because people, they rely on that metabolic effort for their sense of accomplishment. And they're like, oh, I'm out of breath. I'm sweaty, whatever, my legs burn. But in terms of the actual, you know, motor unit recruitment, uh, a lot of people tend to underload some of those higher upsets. Um if you want to do them effectively, they should still be just as hard, but a lot of people don't. Um, and for endurance athletes, especially, I think they have a tendency to underload some of that. Um, so getting an endurance athlete to feel, you know, this is the type of effort I want you to feel. I want you to feel recruitment effort, not metabolic effort. And I think that's a, a different sensation, a different way of going about it. Um, so I would say while an endurance athlete may kind of have a, a predisposition to excel at some of the higher rep stuff, because they 
control their breathing and regulate their blood pressure, um, you know, much better than a, a strength or power athlete would. Just because they're good at it doesn't mean it's the thing they need to be working on. They probably need to be working on the thing that they struggle with most, which is high rate of force development, um, high threshold motor unit recruitment with some of those sets of, of three to five generally. Okay. So with that, it's challenging to tell a runner to get under a bar and work hard for three to five reps. I don't even know if it's appropriate early on to do that. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, I know you're big on even not great form isn't the biggest issue in the world. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But having been a stiff, tight, lack of mobility runner, the actual damage I would incur squatting very light in college was so destructive that it would cost me a week of walking normally. (laughs) It wouldn't challenge my muscles to put out the power. Stopping myself just below parallel and restarting was just like setting my muscles on on fire and exploding them. It just did so much damage that I wasn't using force. I was just like trying not to hurt myself. So, and I was a, I I was, I'm an, on the athletic spectrum of runner and I still had trouble with that. So what do you do with runners so that they can put out force early on and maybe graduate to being able to do it with confidence in other ways? Absolutely. And I think for some reason, I think a lot of strength coaches have a bias of what can we do to get someone to these movements I like? Like, Mm -hmm. what's the progression to get someone to a barbell squat and a deadlift and and whatever? I don't care at all what movement you're doing. I don't care what equipment you're using. I, I don't think it's relevant in the slightest. What matters is what sort of force is going through the tissue. Um, if you want to do a Smith machine, if you want to do a leg press, People will argue about specificity all day. And I think that what you do in the gym is so far removed from running in the first place that trying to make a movement a little bit more specific, um, you know, in the sense that it's upright or it's on one leg or whatever, I just don't think it's that important. And it certainly doesn't supersede the issue of, am I able to generate the force that I want to generate? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're able to get a runner who is, you know, uh, uncoordinated, uh, and you get them on a Smith machine squat versus a barbell, if that allows them to get more weight on the bar and feel more confident, I think that's fantastic. I don't think that we need to say this is a stepping stone and we'll get to the barbell one day. You don't have to get to the barbell ever if you don't want to. If you want to, that's great. I think it'd be a great tool. Um, but I don't think that any of these movements are, are better or worse than others in that sense. As long as we're training the right muscles in kind of the right joint positions and getting a lot of force, you know, being, uh, you know, driven through the tissue. I don't think it really matters that much. And like you said, a lot of runners have, you know, poor coordination or practice some of these movements, uh, maybe limited ankle mobility or hip mobility, whatever it is for that person, the exact movement or setup could be a little bit different depending on their equipment availability and, and whatnot as well. Um, but I just don't think the exercise selection is as important as a lot of coaches would have you believe um, everyone has their kind of magic progressions and exercise selections and, and whatever. Um, and I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all, but it's, it's certainly not the first thing I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about how can we get this person producing force? Right. Well, it's no different than being a doing true polarized training where you're always working nearer to VO two max or really slow versus double threshold or uh, you know, a linear approach. Like they all work. Yeah. How you implement it and for who matters, but it does matter to the self-coached. 
because you have to start somewhere. So treat me as a lifelong runner, pre-novice strength trainer, point me to where I should start. Exercises that are accessible, any room I walk into that is based around strength, but I want to feel confident and as least amount of risk as possible. What do you steer me towards? Absolutely. Um, so any sort in it, you know, if you have uh, machine access at gyms, I think machines are a great place to start um, just because they're kind of hard to screw up. You know, if you got a leg press, a hack squat, um, some of the, uh, those sorts of machines, um, those work, you know, really, really well. Um, I think that supported single leg exercises, and I say supported um, because if you go into a split squat or single leg deadlift, I don't want your balance being a limiting factor. Mm-hmm. But if you have something to hold on to for support, I think a, a split squat, for example, or single leg deadlift holding on to a, a post for balance is one of my favorite places to start because um, the mobility demands are fairly minimal. Uh, most people can get really good range of motion. Most people can push very hard as long as they have something to assist with their balance. Um, for squatting type movements, I think anything that is front loaded, um, you know, front squat, zercher squat, um, goblet squat, depending on how strong you are and what kind of weight you need, front loaded squat patterns tend to be pretty accessible for most people. Um, so those are some of the places that I would start supported single leg exercises, machine exercises, um, front loaded squat patterns. Those are all, all really, really good places to start. Okay. And for me, the stiff average runner who's never strength trained before, do you tell me to worry more about force production or depth? Like, is there, is there a reduction in effectiveness? If I do a four inch squat, but I am quivering under the weight, is that better, worse, or neutral to going all the way down, but only being able to put the bar on my back because I'm not stable enough to do that? Right. So I think it's important to differentiate between load on the bar and torque on the joint. Um, So if we take a half squat, for example, and compare it to a full squat, you might be lifting more weight on the half squat, but that doesn't mean there's actually any more force to the quads. Because as you go lower and lower in the squat, the moment arm or the the distance between the force application and the joints, the length of that lever is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger the lower you squat. And it's going to take less external load to result in more torque on that joint. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we really want to maximize is joint torque. Um, and if you're able to get more joint torque with less external load, I think that's a win-win. Um, so I would rather see you squat lower with less weight, assuming that means more total joint torque. Uh, I think people think that they're getting more force because they're using more weight. But if the range of motion is reduced in something like a squat, you're never putting that joint into position where there's much leverage on it in the first place. Uh, so I think we have to be careful when looking at external loads and think more about you know what are kind of the biomechanics of the force actually going through the muscle rather than the, the force going into the ground. That makes a lot of sense. Do you ever care about it in terms of bone health or is that where the plyo is taken over? Um, same sort of thing in terms of um, and there's, there's certainly axial loading in the sense that the more weight you put on your back, the more weights on your back. Um, but when it comes to like the joints themselves, for example, and like, you know, if you want to improve bone density in the knees and, and whatnot, we really, again, want to maximize that, that joint torque. Uh, I do think that the axial fatigue of having a heavier weight on your back has some pros and cons. Um, it tends to be something that I would say if we can get more muscular development, um, more force across the joint 
with less axial load, I think that's going to be less fatiguing for an athlete that already has so much other work they have to do outside of the gym. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, in that sense, if you can go do a full squat with half the load, that's half the load on your back, you're probably going to walk out of the gym feeling better and more able to be ready for your run than if you had, had to have twice as much weight bearing down on your on your back the whole time. And I'm not one to fear monger spinal loading or axial loading by, by any means. Uh, but I would much rather see someone working through a full range of motion to get the most benefit with the least amount of weight, just to keep some of that systemic fatigue to a minimum. Um, I don't want to add unnecessary systemic fatigue to an athlete that has a whole nother. I like that. That's a good explanation. You just said um, the word muscular muscle might be the first time you've said that one of the first few times you've said that since we started chatting, you've said the word tendon a heck of a lot. You've said the word joint a heck of a lot, but you haven't talked about muscles nearly as much. Why? Why are we why are we talking tendon all the so time? What? And I I'm leading you into this one, but yeah, explain that. You the tendon seems to be the focus. That's where we're going most of the time with this conversation. Yeah, 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 for sure. So when we look at at running, um, a huge portion of the kind of force production, if, if that's even the right word word to use, is a result of elastic properties, uh, elastic properties of the, the, you know, muscle tendon unit, so to speak. Um, and the, the actual force production of muscles to run a good pace is pretty low. You know, in terms of percentage of your, your maximum, it's, it's pretty low, but the impact is high enough that you get a lot of elastic energy return. Um, so we really want to make sure that we've developed those tendons enough that they can, give us the elastic energy return that we want. We don't actually have to be that strong in terms of force production um, to run, but we do want elastic tendons. In the gym, uh, to develop more elastic tendons, we often just have to get stronger. Um, we don't necessarily need a ton of muscle mass um, to be able to run fast. Um, so it's it's kind of a, a, a balance of going into the gym or doing plyometrics and, and that sort of thing. We're not necessarily trying to add a ton of muscle mass or, or muscular force production um, but sometimes to get the tendon adaptations that we want and, and improve some of those elastic properties, getting stronger is just kind of a natural part of that process. Um, getting stronger is great, you know, um, but the focus, I think, for, you know, an, an athlete that, that runs, you, don't, you still have to be that strong. You don't have to squat that much. You don't need super, super big muscles. Um, but the training that can get you big muscles, if you tweak it just a little bit, um, it can be very good at improving some of those uh, elastic properties. If you look at probably the best d- training duo that we've had in our sport in the last two decades, it was Mo Fair and Galen Rupp, at least in terms of championship performance. And they were very big on barbell work. And they were very pathetic from a weight standpoint. But it didn't matter because, to your point, they weren't trying to get strong per se. They weren't trying to move higher away. Their number they were trying to move was not their squat. <laughs> Yet they squatted each week. And and I think something that's important for people to keep in mind when they look at like the weight that uh a runner lifts compared to the, the weight that the a lifter lifts. Um different athletes are going to have different anthropometric uh qualities. They're gonna have different uh limb proportions. They're gonna have different muscle insertion and attachment points. There's a lot of things that make these athletes very different from one another. Um, 
And these same qualities that might make an endurance athlete, a good endurance athlete, are going to set them up for failure <laughs> in the gym in terms of their external performance. Mm-hmm. Um, they may experience larger joint torques uh, for lighter loads. Um, if you have an athlete, for example, that has, uh, you know, extremely long legs, say they're five, six, but they have the legs of a, of a basketball player. Um, you take an athlete like that and have them squat. They might be squatting half of the weight that I'm squatting for the same amount of torque at the knee. Um, so are they really weaker <laughs> than I am? Right. Or mm-hmm. are they just not built for that movement? Um, so they're actually potentially producing a lot more force than we think they are um, based on the external load. Um, so I think that sometimes gives us a, a false sense of how strong or weak some of these athletes are. It's just what, where, where's the force going? You know, and when you have a, an athlete that has those sorts of, of legs that maybe a 95 pound squat feels heavy for them, those same long limbs are able to produce force over a longer period of time for stride and et cetera, and actually give them better power output, um, you know, in that sort of activity, even if it means they may not squat the most amount of weight in the gym. Um, so getting stronger can still be good for them. Um, but the actual weight that they're lifting, it might be low and we have to be careful comparing athletes, um, and be like, Oh, you, you know, you're strong enough or you squat X, so you don't need to get stronger or whatever. Um, we have to consider some of those factors too and be, you know, are you strong or weak for you? Um, and then work from there. That brings us to hybrid where force production is no longer uh, one sport specific. You have to actually move things and then run and then move things again and then run. And suddenly the strength requirements and modalities and best practice, I don't think there is a best practice yet, but the best practices change dramatically in some people's eyes for a sport like high rocks or deca so where where do you start that pivot now from i want you to torque at a you know a range of motion and if it's good for you it's good for you to now you have a sled that's not going to move unless you can put your force into that sled and move it and then you still have to be able to run afterwards so where does your mind approach this sport where does it start sure um I always think the question I always ask myself with any athlete is when we look at their event um, is why weren't you one second faster? You know, so if you finish the event in an hour and 23 minutes and, and 52 seconds, why not one twenty three fifty one? Well, where can we put our efforts that are going to give you that second faster with the, the least amount of, of effort and input? So I'm always looking for, for low hanging fruit. Um, and I think a lot of that for a lot of athletes in the hybrid space, uh, at least a lot of recreational athletes, this is probably different for the, the higher level athletes. Um, but I think a lot of recreational athletes, they get into the hybrid space because they're excited that there's a strength element, but by far their bottleneck is still aerobic capacity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a lot of people make the mistake of they get into a high rocks, for example, and it's hard. Like obviously you, you work hard at any event. It's going to, it's going to feel tough. Um, and they show up at like wall balls and they're gassed and they're like, I think I need to, I think I need to improve my squat or something like that. It's like, no, you run a a nine minute mile, you know, and you're exhausted after running for an hour and a half. You have nothing left. You don't need to get stronger. You need to have some capacity so you can use the strength you have. And I think that's the most common theme for recreational athletes. Uh, When we get into more advanced athletes, um, that kind of needs analysis, I think it's a, a little bit trickier in terms of 
you know, if we dedicate an additional hour to this type of training versus an additional hour to this type of training, what's the payoff going to be? And then thinking short term and thinking long term, um, it can certainly get a little bit tricky. Um, but I think most people overestimate the strength demands of something like a, a high rocks, um, you know, especially those that are not that aerobically fit to begin with. It gives them a false sense of, of weakness when really they're just not conditioned. Okay. So let's take yourself for an example. You did a high rocks. What was your experience and what were your takeaways? Uh, man, the high rocks I did. Um, I think the you see a lot of different types of athletes in high rocks that all do pretty well. You look at, um, I'm, I forget some of the athletes. I, I know a lot of athletes' uh, Instagram handles more than their, their full name, so I apologize. But you look like Hunter versus... Uh, the hybrid raccoon, he calls himself Dylan. Name. Dylan. Um, you look at, at that guy. Um, there's a, a guy who attempted the Murph record a while ago. Um, I can't remember his name. Um, but you have some like tall, skinny athletes, you know, probably 160 pounds. You got Hunter who's, who's pushing 200. Um, you got a wide range of, of athletes. And I think it can be tricky to look at yourself and compare yourself to, to one of those athletes. Cause if I was going to compare myself to Hunter, if I'm like, okay, I need to be more like Hunter. Me trying to get more like Hunter is a completely different style of training for me. If I wanted to become him, than me trying to get more like Dylan, you know, if I want to become Hunter, I got to put on, I got to put on 40 pounds. I got to make all sorts of changes to become Hunter. If I want to become Dylan, I got to lose weight and lose strength and do way more conditioning. Um, but both those athletes are phenomenal at the sport. Um, so I, I think you have to ask yourself, where can I get the best return on investment? Um, and that depends on, you know, a lot of individual factors for someone like me, a shorter athlete, um, shorter, uh, shorter, smaller individual, I have to be disproportionately strong compared to a taller athlete. Um, for example, um, if I'm, if I have the same kind of strength to weight ratio, for example, that Hunter does, I'm actually probably going to do really poorly. You know, I can't get away with the strength to weight ratio that he has because he has so much more body mass behind him. Um, so I think you have to think about how strong do I need to be to be able to perform as well as, as somebody else. Um, so if you are on like the, the smaller side, for example, I think you have to bias the strength a little bit more. If you're on the larger side, you probably need to bias the conditioning a little bit more. Um, so I, w- I would tackle it from that perspective of there's no optimal ratio between strength and conditioning and, and et cetera. It's, you know, how much time is it going to take for me to improve this quality? And then do I need to focus more on one or the other based on, you know, my unique physiology and size and strengths and weaknesses? So if I remember correctly, sled pull was not a pleasant experience for you. Sled pull was not a pleasant experience for me, um, which is is really fascinating and and that race was a mess for, for a variety of reasons. Um, I couldn't grip the rope was basically what it came down to, or essentially I was pulling myself forward on the, the carpet, um, potentially a, a poor uh, footwear decision as well. Um, but essentially if I gripped the rope and pulled hard enough, I pulled myself onto the, uh, the, the track. Right. Um, and I think at the time of that race, I was probably about 155 pounds or so. Um, so pretty light athlete wearing slick shoes, kind of a, a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Um, a little more body mass probably would have helped a little more traction probably would have helped. Um, but if you think about, you know, let's just say if it took 200 pounds of pulling force to, to move that 
sled, um, you know, there's a big difference between having to pull with, you know, one and a half times your body weight of force and one times your body weight of force in terms of your ability to stabilize and stick to the ground and um, that sort of thing. Not to mention height in terms of being able to pull from a, you know, a little bit higher position and, and those sorts of things. Uh, so when you account for body mass, height, all those sorts of things, I would probably have to be, you know, 50% to 100% stronger than someone who's six inches taller and, and 40 pounds heavier. Uh, so that definitely changes the training needs quite a bit. So let's talk about that because that's a huge sticking point. We had uh, Matt Gross on here, who is a four-minute miler and uh, a group record holder on the ERGs, and he had a 29-minute sled pull, I believe, in his first one. He's now since run significantly faster in his second one, but how does someone with the classic runner background who's not going to bring weight to the table who can only hope to have a good power to weight ratio, how would you go about addressing the pull in training? So one is the the technique and making sure you can grip the floor. Um, so make sure you have shoes that are not going to slip um, because you're going to have to get much lower kind of angle on it. You're going to have to lower your body weight to be able to lean back more. You're not going to be able to pull from as high up. So the friction of your feet into the floor is going to be significantly higher than for a lot of athletes. So the chances of having some sort of grip issues are higher. Um, so training, make sure you can replicate that. Um, make sure you're getting low on your, uh, kind of low on the rope, leaning your weight pretty far back. Uh, in practice, being able to use as much of your body mass as possible. Where some of the bigger athletes might be able to just kind of use their body mass as a, as an anchor and pull with the arms. You're probably going to have to put more leg drive into it, more hip drive into it. Um, so a more full body technique is, is going to be critical for someone like that, um, that might have, you know, as much, mass in their legs as as a guy like hunter has in his arms and lats mm -hmm. and where do you focus that outside of pull itself how are you building that power and that muscular endurance to get through a four to six minute exercise sure i'm, I'm glad you brought up muscular endurance because i think that's one of the most poorly understood concepts in strength and conditioning um in terms of the physiology of what muscular endurance is um muscular endurance is at least what the, the, the research points to in terms of what are the adaptations occurring or what is the physiology of someone with good muscular endurance and how can we train it? It's really an emergent property. Um, meaning it's, it's the combination of force production and mitochondrial density and capillary density. Um, is there anything really unique going on that you can train by doing a three minute long set of sled pull that you don't get from saying spending an hour on the erg developing the you know mitochondrial density and capillary density in those muscles while also developing maximal force production with heavy rows and chin-ups and, and whatnot and there's not a lot of compelling evidence that doing a set of 30 40 reps some of those those higher rep ranges really confer any sort of unique physiological adaptation compared to what you get working the, the extremes or, or, or more polarized approach um, i think that it's important to work specificity work the skill so when it comes to muscular endurance, I think it's an, it's really an emergent property that, that combines strength, endurance, and coordination of movement efficiency. So when it comes to tasks where you need that so-called muscular endurance, I think it's important that you train the strength and the endurance in a, in a general capacity. But when it comes to the actual endurance work, essentially, that, that longer sustained work, it should be as specific as possible to work in that movement efficiency. Um, so I would say from a training perspective or a sled pull, I would do heavy pull-ups or chin-ups and rows, you know, general heavy training. I would make sure you spend sufficient time doing very long pulling things, you know, for grip and 
drip uh, kind of capacity, um, whether you're on an ur or you do some rock climbing, whatever, things where you're getting a lot of volume in, and then just practice the sled exactly as it is. Um, I wouldn't do like sets of 40 on the row on barbell rows or anything like that. Um, I don't think that there's a lot of compelling evidence that you can really get muscular endurance adaptations that are transferable in that sense that are any superior to what you'd get from that more polarized approach. It makes sense. Do you feel that way across the board? Walking lunges, wall balls for sure. There's a massive ease of movement and efficiency component, but like a walking lunge or burpee broad jumps. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same thing. Um, like if you're going to want to be good at the, uh, the walking lunges is a, is a good one because that's a common kind of strength move. Um, polarized approach. If you can do heavy lunges and you have good, you know, running capacity or especially like hill running capacity, stairmaster capacity, if you have endurance on activities like that and you can, you know, lunge heavy enough that the, uh, the load on the, the weighted lunge is less than 30% of your one rep max, it's going to feel very light, very easy. And then it's really just a, a speed and movement efficiency kind of factor. Um, when the weights do get light, you do have to consider the rate of force production. Um, and that's a separate kind of trainable skill and quality. Um, they can make the, the time go by a lot faster. So it's really not just a matter of muscular endurance, but also speed. Um, so you're not just having to survive a three-minute or two-minute set of walking lunges. You're also trying to do each step as quickly as possible so that it's a shorter set overall. Um, and that's a quality you can get from doing, like, say, lunge jumps, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so if you can improve the rate of force production and the endurance and the maximal strength, kind of tackle all the true kind of fundamental aspects of kind of muscular adaptation, the emergent property of muscular endurance is, is going to come much easier. I like that. If you're looking to get under 30% of one rep max on a weighted lunge, you're looking at what, like a 270-pound uh, walking lunge to be ready for a high rocks weight? Yeah, give or take. Um, and it, I would I would say you don't have to necessarily practice that specific movement, but you should have the underlying leg strength to be able to get there, if that makes sense. It doesn't mean you have to commit to a barbell lunge one rep max, um, but you should have the kind of muscle mass on the legs that that would not be outrageous to, to think was possible. But what if it were? So let's say you did your first race and you're 12 weeks out from your next one and you could maybe do a one rep walking lunge with 155. 12 weeks is, for a lot of people, that is not going to happen, get up in that 250, 270 range. Do you have a pivot to that or you get as close as possible? So I, I don't want anyone to listen to this and think I'm telling them they need to be able to run like 300 pounds. Um, cause that's, that's not the idea, especially considering, you know, as you go heavier and heavier on a single leg exercise, there's a, a huge skill component to it. Um, I would say you can look at your strength in five to 10, 10 rep ranges on a stable version, for example. So if you look at like a Smith machine lunge, for example, um, you know, something more stable. And then you look in like the 10 rep range, you're not dealing with the, the skill of, of one rep max performance and, and that sort of thing, um, then you might want to be able to comfortably do, you know, 225 or something like 185 to 225 for sets of 10. I think that's going to set you up well to be able to handle, you know, 70 pounds with ease. Hmm. Okay. That's going to be depressing for some people. How do you help somebody understand what they need more of? Like, I think a lot of people don't know. Um, like, I should focus on my power output 
or I need to focus on my aerobic conditioning. Um, do you have any like steadfast rules for people? Um, my, my short answer for that is, is looking at athlete trends. Um, for something like high rocks, where you have such a wide range of, of athlete, uh, kind of archetypes, it gets a little bit trickier. Um, but like if you, on average, if you look at, okay, what, what qualities do the people who are beating me possess? What do those athletes look like? And if you look at all the athletes that are beating you in an event like this, and you notice that they are categorically better and more impressive than you in the gym, not in any specific lift. I don't want you to pick one athlete who beats you at high rocks and notice they squat 20 pounds more and then you're chasing that target. Um, but if you look and you're like, okay, this whole collection of athletes, I look at their gym training and I, I think it's impressive. I don't think I could do that. Then you should probably do that. <laughs> uh, mm. You should probably pursue the things that categories of athletes are doing. Um, you know, ignore the outliers, ignore specific exercises. But if you show up on the start line or you're looking at the podium and you're like, all those athletes up there have a better physique than me. You know, they're more muscular than me. They're leaner than me. Then that might be something you want to think about. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you look at the the podium, you look at athletes beating you and you're like, I don't understand how they can do that. Like I'm, I'm stronger than they are. I, you know, have a better physique than they do. Well, that's probably what, that's not what you need to be thinking about. That's not the reason they're up there. Um, so I think looking at trends, looking at the athletes who are a little bit better than you and figuring out what do they all have in common or what do most of them have in common. Um, and that will give you a very good idea of what you should be working on yourself. Do you think it's as simple as dissecting race splits when it's all done? High rocks is very good about laying out the data. Like, could it be that simple for somebody? People love to look at their splits or is it more nuanced? I mean, I think there's nuance within the, the data analysis. I think the more that people master the sport, the better the data is going to get. You know, I think, you know, when the, when it was fairly new, people weren't racing well, they weren't strategizing well. Uh, and I think there's probably a lot of bad data in the sense that the splits that people were running were maybe not conducive to the fastest possible times. I think now people have been doing this and training for it enough that the the good people have figured out what works. They know what strategies work. They know how to pace it. So I think we have some good reference data to work off of. I think the nuance then is looking at what type of athlete is it? You know, if you compare uh, a Dylan and a, and a Hunter, I'm sure that their splits are going to be a little bit different in terms of where one shines a little bit more than the other. Um, so I, I think you have to apply some level of, of nuance to it. Um, but I think that we do have some pretty good references that you can, you can target and chase now. And the, the splits lead you to sometimes forget why. Like I ran a 424 last thousand. But why? It's not because your running sucked. Maybe. Maybe it's because lunges crushed you. Yeah. Or maybe it's because your running sucked. <laughs> the why matters in high rocks. Mm. Exactly. And I, I think that's where you have to be careful, especially looking at um, just the splits of one athlete. You know, I think some of those sorts of things of, oh, I paced poorly on this or that one was really hard for me. I think that will sometimes come out in the averages. You know, if you look at look at the splits of the the top 10 at a race and then compare them to yours versus just the winner, or just, just one particular person, then I think you have a pretty good idea of, okay, all of these athletes are decimating me on the wall balls. Um, there's probably a, a trend there I should be aware of. Um, we're getting near the end here, past the end actually, but I do have one last question I want to ask you. Um, you seem to like to kick the beehive on social media with your posts. 
You like to put things out there that you know most people won't agree with, or not most, but some. There'll be haters, as you call it. You're forward thinking, and you will rebut an argument that nobody has said to you yet, but people are thinking, or a common uh, misconception in the industry. You're, you're a good warrior for people not being dicks, really, when it comes down to it in regards to people's fitness and strength training. What's that about? Where, when did that start? How did you get down that, that path? Oh, man, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think that the more that I've used social media, and you know, I, I've years ago, I started posting more, creating more content and that sort of thing. And I, I recognize the importance of not just being a creator, but being a, a user and engaging with people and seeing what other people are doing and, and that sort of thing that the more I started to pay attention, um, the more I started to see how much really fantastic, excellent content is out there if you look in the right places and how much absolute trash is out there if you look in the wrong places. Um, mm -hmm. And unfortunately, some of this bad information tends to spread a lot faster. Um, you know, and we, we have a lot of <laughs> data on how quickly misinformation spreads uh, on social media and news and, and whatnot. And unfortunately, it's it's the very same with, with fitness. Um, if you see a post that went viral or was trending, it got millions of views, there's like a six to 10, uh, you know, full chance that it is bad <laughs> compared to information <laughs> that's actually correct. It's, it's just unfortunately that much less likely um, to go to go viral. Um, and then I go on a public gym, you know, I, I train at a, a very large gym with thousands of members and I look around and I see the stuff that people are doing. And on the one hand, I want to make fun of them and be like, Oh, what an idiot. They're doing this stupid thing. But then you look on, on Instagram, you're like, well, no wonder they're doing this stupid thing. The stupid thing is everywhere. It's what people are talking about. It's, it's going viral. How can you blame them? They supposedly got this information from an expert. Um, it's it's not their fault. And I recognize that not everyone is going to be so passionate about it that they're going to do that deeper dive and, and really dig into it to find the truth. They're just kind of trusting that what they see is good and that that expert with an eight pack knew what they were talking about. Um, and that just pisses me off, man. Um, it just bothers me that someone can't, th that we have all this information readily available if you look in the right places. Um but we still put bad information in front of people. It just makes me makes me upset. It makes me sad. So um, it feels like kind of fighting a never-ending battle, but I think it's really important that people that do know and that do care and that do put a little bit more time and energy into figuring out what's, what's right and what's helpful, I think we have a responsibility to kind of fight the good fight and, and tell people when something is, is wrong. Because I, I think it's, uh, it's important. Um, people that go into the gym and, the, and they waste their time, I, I think it's tragic. Um, you know, it's their life, it's their health, it's their fitness, it's their hobby, it's, it's whatever it is. Uh, I don't think it's to be taken lightly. And I hate to see people spin their wheels like that, think they're doing the right thing when they're just not. Um, so if I can play a small part in helping people, you know, get closer to their goals, um, get closer to the health that they want, um, I want to do everything I can. And if that means telling some people on the internet that they're complete idiots and that they should, uh, <laughs> you know, not be putting that content out there, then, then so be it. You might make a few enemies along the way.
Yeah, I think you're encouraging people to be less risk averse than more. Or wait, more risk averse than less. You're saying like, like scared, like a lot of times it's like scared, like you can't do this and you shouldn't do this because it's bad for you. And you're like, that's not, that's just simply not the truth. Like think, get yourself outside of the box. It's okay. Is what I'm, what I gather. And I will say, I follow a lot of fitness influencers and we're going to have to wrap this up, but, um, probably one of the better you post every day and I want to get people to your page cause I think it's really good stuff. Um, probably one of the most in like, um, genuine fitness accounts with very ingenious movements and things that people walk into a normal gym and never see people doing. And the amount of shares and likes and all that, you see the back end of it, I'm sure is phenomenal because I see the stuff reposted. One of my athletes just posted uh, one of your sit-up movements um, the other day and said, Alec Blennis, more of this. And I was like, oh, he follows you. And he's like, I think it's just, it's a good follow. You can follow some chick in a thong bikini doing pull-ups at the beach, like fine, but like that's bland vanilla compared to the stuff you're doing. And so I just think that people should definitely give you a follow. Um, And Maybe, you know, at least you give some shirtless stuff once in a while. So I guess there's a little, you know, a little thirst going on once in a while. But but the content behind it is great. And so I think people should give you a follow. Where can people do that? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so my Instagram is at Alec Buenos. It's just my full name. Um, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in it. I try to put out good content as often as I can. Um, I try to walk that balance between getting, you know, being just controversial enough or just just enough uh, thirst traps to get some views. Um, but I try to balance that out with as much quality education and, and stuff as I can. Um, I do a weekly q and I always remind people to watch my stories because I put some Q&As out there um, on a weekly basis. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, I don't do any ads. I don't do any sponsored anything, product placement, whatever. I don't make any money on it. Um, I never want to. I think that not that you can't. Um, you know, people, it's free country. You can do, you can do whatever you want. Um, but I just feel a lot better about the stuff I put out there knowing that there's there's no sort of financial incentive or, or a conflict of interest behind it. Um, if people want to work with me, if they like what they see, they can sign up for coaching. Uh, and that's that's kind of it. Bracken, I mentioned this to you last weekend when we got together, but I told you about uh, I did an assault bike workout, fully clothed. Okay, fully clothed. I did my last rep. I took my shirt off and filmed it. But I didn't do the workout with my shirt off. I did my workout with my shirt on. But for the last rep, for the gram, I took the shirt off and somebody asked me, he's like, why are you, like, why do you, why, why do you post like shirtless stuff? I was like, to remind people that I'm here and like that I am still my own product. And I think it's an important part of what you do is like, Hey, like if I'm going to teach you, I need to show that I obviously follow, you know, my guidance. And so I think it's, I think your quote was to remind them I could take their soul if I wanted to show up and do it. It was something along those that's lines. A, that's an amazing quote. <laughs> well, yeah, I, mean, I was a little more brash. I think that is what I said. But point being, it's a hard, it's a fine line as somebody in the space to 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 like remind people like, hey, like I'm like I'm a valid person. You should take advice from because I practice what I preach, and then like not like slutting yourself out. It's like a hard line to it's a, it's a fine line to walk. Got to be got to figure that out. <laughs> it is. I, I think that uh, I think if. If you truly, what's the saying? Uh, alpha males don't have to announce their alpha. People just know. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> stupid. <cool>. Um, <laughs> but I mean, really, if, if you are actually, if you're actually fit, I don't think that you have to go out of your way that much for people to get it. 
I think mm-hmm. you can you can be yourself, you can be authentic, and if if you know what you're talking about, if you actually walk the walk, I, I don't think you have to try that hard to let people know. Yeah, cut off shirt and neck veins pop and go a long ways too. That's what I think. <laughs> yeah, you got anything else, Bracken? No, Alec. Thanks for your time and thanks for. Um sharing knowledge as always whether it's on here whether it's online like you said it's unfortunate that usually the 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 most readily available information is the most wrong or the most misleading or the most or the least useful so the fact that there are some outlets that people can rely upon to not have a compromised message is very much needed in this industry and as always we appreciate anyone who can combine the running world with the strength world Thank you, Bracken. And, and I, uh, I actually just thought of it because I, I remember the last time you messaged me on Instagram, you were asking about shorts. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I like to be able to share things with people that just actually help me. Like if I find a snack I like or a shoes I like, I want to be able to talk about those things and not be like, well, it's not my sponsor or like, I'm not going to say I like these shoes because I'm sponsored by, by these. And I thought of you the other day because I, I found some running shorts that I absolutely love. I'm like, I got to tell Bracken about these, <laughs> exactly. these shorts. Um, but maybe, maybe I'll message you so I don't, uh, I'm not promoting on the show or something, but, um, do it. Yeah. No, I, so I got the, uh, the, you, you may have gotten them, the Nike trail short. Um, they're like the best gym shorts ever. They have like six massive pockets. I don't chafe in them. They're I warm they're yesterday. Great. You got, you have them? Uh, the precursor to it, but yeah, they have the little loops on it and stuff and I cut those off, but I like them a lot. Yeah. Sunrise. What makes you think I don't like nice shorts too, Alec? <laughs> Brack and I were having a conversation about, uh, about chafing. That sounds about right. That tracks. The, the ever going struggle of the hybrid athlete. Mm-hmm. He he wore a pair of shorts while he was lunging. I thought those look good on my legs. I want to know what they are. No, if Bracken can have a chance to chat about his nether reasons, nether reasons, he'll find a way to do it. That's what I think. We need to cut this thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks for having me on, guys. See you, Alec. All right. Thanks, Alec. If anything resonated with you on today's episode and you're curious about taking your training to the next level, check out therunningpublic.com, where we have a training plan to fit your needs.